Our journey through the book of Numbers continues and is uh, coming to a close here in, uh, will probably take us through the end of June at least, um, but not that far, and we'll, we'll have made it to the end of this Israelite journey through the wilderness. What I want to do is something I don't often do, and that is take a long passage of Scripture and actually read it to you this morning. Uh, that's going to take us a little bit of time, uh, but I think it's important in this case because the story is so well told. Uh, it's a somewhat famous story. Many of you, uh, if, if you've been around the church for any length of time, probably have heard some version of this story. But the storyteller does such an incredible job in this chapter that I want uh, us to hear it in its fullness, and then uh, we'll summarize it and make some observations and hopefully draw some meaningful conclusions for us. So, Numbers chapter 22, this is the story of Balaam and his famous talking donkey. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Uh, so let me set the stage for you again. Of course, the, serp- the story of the fiery serpents has happened. And Israel has been redeemed by God. They've defeated uh, the kings Sihon and Og, and they're moving up around Edom uh, to come to the land. And now they're on the edge of the kingdom of Moab. Uh, Verse 2, Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Uh, And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. So Balak is the king of Moab, and the whole nation sees how many Israelites are there on their border, and there's fear in them. Verse 4, the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, uh, it's the neighboring nation, the horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Incredible imagery, isn't it? So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor who was at Pethor near the Euphrates River in his native land. And Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled right next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee of divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely. 
and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyard with the walls on both sides, and the donkey saw the angel pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, (laughs) And he was so angry, he beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey. This is bizarre. You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Balaam, continuing this strange conversation with his donkey, says, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. But I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I have come to you now, Balaam replied. But I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Incredible story. Somewhat unbelievable, but incredible nonetheless. 
and actually quite hard to really understand all that's going on here. Let me give you a quick summary and attempt to make some observations that I think will help us understand what's happening here. The the Israelites are on the move. Uh, They're obviously a large nation at this time. Moab has heard what has happened. I'm sorry he's heard the stories of the Exodus, the Red Sea, all of that stuff. He's heard what happened to the Amorites. Then he heard what happened to Sihon. He heard what happened to Og. He's making a calculation in his mind that this won't go well for him. And so uh, he summons this guy Balaam, who's going to put a curse on Israel so that then Balak can defeat them. But when he goes to Balaam, Balaam uh, seeks God. God speaks to him, says, don't go. And Balaam ups the ante and pressures him more. And so Balaam seeks God. And God says, if they've come back, then go with them, but tell them only what I say. And so Balaam gets up to go, but as soon as he gets up to go, then God's angry with him all of a sudden, right? The same God who had told him to go. So what's that all about? We'll have to figure that out together. And three times an angel confronts Balaam, even though Balaam can't see him, and the donkey stops him. And Balaam's getting increasingly frustrated with this donkey. And then finally God opens his eyes, and Balaam has an aha moment and says, I have sinned. I'll go back if you want me to. But the angel says, no, go forward, but say only what the Lord tells you. And so he arrives in pomp and circumstance before the king of Moab, but he says to him, I can't tell you, what any, I can't tell you whatever I want. I must tell you only what the Lord can tell me. Well, I think for us to understand what's happening here, we have to kind of get at the big picture of what the the writer is trying to tell us in Numbers chapter 22. And we're looking at this passage of Scripture in this time from a Moabite perspective, right? This is told from the eyes of the Moabites, not from the eyes of the Israelites. And I think the writer wants to put us in the shoes of the Moabites. What would it have been like to be them in that moment as they see this mounting uh, army against them. And knowing that they have to look outside of themselves for rescue or for trust, where would they turn? And really, uh, this narrative presents two options. The first option is the option that they choose, and that option is this man named Balaam. Now think about this with me for a minute. Balaam was known and renowned, obviously. He was the go-to guy in circumstances like this. He had power and clout and influence. If you could get Balaam on your side, things would probably turn out well. It makes me think uh, historically of the American Civil War as it was about to break out. Uh, Both sides wanted Robert E. Lee on their side because they knew he was the guy. He was the best general that we had. And they fought over which side he would go on. I get Balaam kind of as a picture of like that. He's like the all-star. He's like the one that if you could just get him on your side, everything would go well. And here's the truth about Balaam. Balaam gets a bad rap sometimes. uh, And it's deserved. But it's not completely deserved. Because I think Balaam is a mixed bag. And I think it's important for us to understand that so we get at what's happening here. That is that there's, some, there's plenty of good in Balaam and there's plenty of bad in Balaam. 
We love just straight-out villains who are just completely evil. And so we love to make Balaam that guy sometimes. But there's this mixed bag of good and bad. But what is true is that he's a corrupted human being which makes him an incapable rescuer. And that's what the story wants us to see. He's doing good things, but he's completely corruptible and therefore an incapable rescuer. But the Moabites had a different choice they could have made. It doesn't seem necessarily obvious to us in the moment, but they actually could have chosen God Himself as their rescuer. They could have turned and gone to the Israelites and, and uh, submitted themselves to, the, to Yahweh, the, the, the God of the Israelites, who had brought them out of Egypt with power and had delivered them in these kingdoms. And they could have sought a peace in some way. I don't want to overstate my hand because we're going to talk about this a good bit next week. But the truth of the matter is, if you read surrounding passages, Israel had no intention and no directive from God to attack Moab. They were going to pass them by. This is something that Balak and the Moabites brought on themselves. So God was there as a potential rescuer and deliverer for them. But what does that mean for us? I think if we're going to understand this and if it's going to mean anything to us, what we're called to do is place ourselves in this story. And all too often, what will happen in a story like this is we'll place ourselves in the position of Balaam, right? And so the sermon will go something like this. Oh man, Balaam was a really bad guy. Don't be like Balaam. Try harder, be better. And there's no gospel in that. That's actually a moralistic sermon and it's not helpful for us. And I actually think Balaam isn't fully representative of us. I actually think if we're going to find our position in this story, we're actually just like regular uh, people in the nation of Moab. Trying to figure out what we do in this massive mess that's happening. And we're faced just like them with the choice. And the choice is, who's going to be our rescuer? Or maybe even more practically stated, who or what are we actually going to trust? And Balaam then represents all of the natural things we tend to trust in this world. They get lots of clout, lots of popularity, lots of publicity. They seem like the right things to trust. And there's a lot of good in them, but they're also very corruptible and can leave us in a lurch. But then there's God. The One who through this whole story we've been being pushed to see as the only One we can trust. And here once again, that lies in front of us. So, that being said, I think Numbers chapter 22, what it does is actually presents a stunning comparison and contrast of Balaam and God. And for us to truly understand what's happening here, We've got to dive into that contrast and then ask ourselves really important questions like, okay, I get it. I'm not going to find some sorcerer uh, on the outskirts of modern-day Iraq. But what is it that I'm actually prone to trust when I should actually be trusting the God of the universe? Does this make sense? So, comparing and contrasting, I think there are three things that jump out to me loud and clear. I'm certain there are more in this passage. 
Uh, but these three things, they jump out loud and clear to me, and I want to dive into them for a little bit of time this morning. The first thing that we want to compare and contrast is this idea of power. Which rescuer has power? Which thing that we're prone to trust has real power? The second thing is vision. And by vision, I don't necessarily mean like a CEO who has a vision for the next 25 years. I mean, the rescuer, the thing that we're trusting, what do they actually see? Or what do they actually fix their eyes on? This passage of Scripture has a lot of talk about seeing or looking or eyes. And then the third thing is this issue of loyalty or fidelity, faithfulness. What rescuer is truly faithful? So let's take those three things and compare and contrast our, our two choices, Balaam and God. The first is power, right? And Balaam has the reputation for incredible power. Again, he's going first in the draft if you're looking for someone of his ilk. And so uh, he's known for his power. He's known for his divination. I pause. This is not a sermon about um, sorcery and curses and things like that, but I pause and remind you that they are real. All right? They are real. They are not something to be just dismissed. They are real uh, and they're quite dangerous. And he's known for it. That is, he has a proven track record of demonstrating his capacity and ability in this arena. And that's why they chose him. But the narrative does an incredible, ironic, but incredible job of showing just how limited the power of this so-called all-powerful one actually is in the moment. Because this guy who's chosen for his ability to confront Yahweh, the God of Israel, and to stop and block him, in this story, can't even control his donkey. Let alone kill his donkey who he wants to kill. And so we are faced with this contrast and this reality that even the things and the people with great influence or power or status in our world that seem like they have endless amounts of power all have a limit. That is that the power of Balaam or would-be Balaam's always has an end. And it is unlimited. And what's more, the story of Balaam shows us that power can often be used in an unrighteous way. I said that there's good and bad in Balaam, and we'll get into that a little bit more in the second and third points, but uh, suffice to say that He's prone to use his capacities not always in the most just and righteous ways, right? So here you have this choice that the world is saying, this is it. If you get this guy on your side, you'll have everything you need. Or a God who is seemingly intangible and certainly a great promise maker but has led his people on a difficult 40-year journey through a wilderness. And now you understand 
why it is so easy for people like me and you and Moabites of that day and Israelites of that day to trust in Balaam. Think about it in our world. What are the things that assert power and influence? What are the storylines that we're told? If you just get this on your side or in your portfolio or under your control, then you'll have it made, right? The right job, the right wife or husband, the right boyfriend or girlfriend, the right circle of friends at school, the right vocation, the right address in the right neighborhood, the right bank account, all of these things, the right political people in office, all of these things that we so often lean on and trust are Balaam's. Not necessarily completely evil, but completely corruptible and therefore limited in their power. But look at God in this narrative. The very God who this great and powerful Balaam is going to curse, right? Balaam comes to confront Yahweh, and instead, God confronts Balaam through a donkey. Isn't this beautiful? Right? This is incredible. And what you see in this story is actually, whereas Balaam's power is limited, the power of our God is unlimited. Think about this for a minute. He exerts His power over Balaam by consistently redirecting him. He pushes them off the road. He gets him into a narrow part down through the vineyard and eventually in this narrow little tunnel. Now, Balaam isn't going to choose any of these on his own. God is pushing him that way. He's exerting his power and influence over what society said was the most powerful and influential. What's more, he's exerting his power over Balak, this great king of Moab who has devised this incredible plan to get Balaam on his side. And Balaam will curse Israel and everything will happen. And what we see in this storyline is God's going to take Balak's intention and repurpose it for his own glory because he's more powerful. And what's more, just to show off a little, I suppose, God demonstrates his power over all creation by making a donkey talk. Now, exactly how this happened, we don't know. And if this was uh, a verbal speaking of the donkey, absolutely possible and well may have been. Or if this was uh, Balaam having a moment, we don't know. But it's recorded for us in this way. And what we see more than anything is the power of God on demonstration over the whole created order of things. This is a story for the Israelites and the Moabites to read later and say, yeah, you're right. We never should have trusted Balaam. And isn't it true of us, the things we tend to trust in this world? 401Ks, jobs, circles of friends, political parties, ourself, our flesh, our own intuition, all the things we lean on in this world. God actually exerts power and authority over them. That's why His redemptive plan is so incredibly beautiful. So today, as perhaps you face a mounting army of sorts in front of you, or on the edge of your so-called terrain, whether that 
army is, a difficult diagnosis, a struggle at work, familial strife, or something yet to be identified, just know that you will have the choice as you do in every moment of life. Say, what will I trust? What will I identify as my rescuer? And one of the questions that you should really come to grips with is, who actually has the power to deliver me? And the answer is, only God. But the comparison and contrast is not just about power. It's also about vision. Again, tons of discussion in this chapter about seeing. One of the reasons that Balaam was chosen is because he was a prophet, a great seer, who could not only cast spells or curses or be a sorcerer or engage in divination, but who could see and, and predict the things that were going to happen. Now, it's important for us here to pause and understand the good and the bad that are happening in the life of Balaam. Because Balaam seeks out God and hears from him. We lose this in this story all the time when we want to just dump on Balaam. The word that is used here is the covenant name for the God of Israel. He's not just seeking a generic God and God happens to show up. He's seeking God and later on calls Him the Lord my God. This is significant and important for us to understand and give some credit to Balaam for hearing from God and choosing to obey Him. And saying, I'm not going to go with. God says, I can't. And then, of course, the king sends more important people and tries to convince him with a more lucrative offer. And perhaps Balaam's teetering. We don't know at this moment, but he's going to hear from God again. And God says to him, okay, they've come again. Go with them but only say what I want you to say. Now listen, oftentimes commentators, and they well may be right, perhaps my take on this is wrong, will say, Balaam is just using God as a negotiating tool to get more money and clout in this moment. Perhaps that's right. Perhaps my take is wrong. I don't think so. I think what we actually see in here is a God who is trying to be patient in the redemption of Balak. We'll talk about this next week again. Who's giving him time to reconsider who he's actually trusting. And now he's in the, in the process of adjusting Balak's plan. So I think at this moment, Balaam is still hearing from God and following him. But there's also bad, right? It's not just good. Balaam is corruptible. And so we have this interesting part of the story where God uh, sends the angel to confront Balaam three separate times. And what is incredibly striking about this story is Balaam can't see the angel. The very thing he's supposed to be good at, he can't do. And what's more, the thing he can't do, the donkey can do, right? You can make incredible jokes at this moment, but I'll pass on that. And isn't it so often true of the things we trust in this world? Even the things that are good or start out with good intentions, that they actually don't have eyes to consistently see the right things. Now listen, Balak has eyes to see something. There is a striking storyline that is emerging about Balaam 
in this particular section of the text that it's important for us to understand. And I think one of the reasons why God confronts him in this way to kind of expose this truth in Balaam. So we say, why, why did God say go with them and all of a sudden confront him? Well, I think the confrontation is less about the disobedience of Balaam, more about revealing what's actually going on in Balaam's heart. And one of the things that's going on in Balaam's heart is what we would call pride, right? Pretty common human corruptible condition. Because Balaam doesn't have eyes to see the angel who is stopping him, but he has complete vision to see socially what's happening to him in that moment, right? So Balaam is like really angry at the donkey, and it's kind of humorous and also kind of offensive at, at the same level what he's doing to this donkey. But all what's coming from is his corrupted heart. Do you see it? Because what he is seeing is his public humiliation in front of everyone. Here is this guy, the it guy, the guy everyone comes to for help. And here he is off in this royal procession on donkey to Moab, being worshipped and well thought of, and all of a sudden the donkey is embarrassing him. Again, we could make lots of jokes right here, but I will not go there. You guys make as many jokes as you want later on, right? The donkey is having his way with Balaam, and Balaam is humiliated, publicly embarrassed. Why? Because the gaze of Balaam is much more locked on himself than it is on God. Do you see this? This is even more about him than it is about Israel or Moab or God. And so we see the corruptible nature, the mix of the good and bad. And we see it in the things we tend to trust in this world. They're not out and out evil, but they're corruptible. There's humanity involved in it. And and more often than not, the gaze is much more fixed on self and forward movement than it actually is on the right things. Balaam has pride. And pride is a fatal flaw for a dependable rescuer. But then we turn and we look at the vision of God. And we see two really incredible things. In the vision of God, we see a long-suffering, patient and resolved vision in one singular direction. Right? The Israelites have not made this easy for God, and yet His vision is continually locked on the promise that He has made to them. A promise of a land where His people can dwell with Him forever in covenant relationship that can ultimately be a blessing to the world. And God is locked on that so much so that He's continually redeeming and rescuing His people as they turn off the path because He is not going to turn off the path. Incredible. And what's more, the vision of God sees through the external facade that we like to put up directly to our hearts and exposes them in order to provoke repentance. Balaam's gaze is fixed on the external facade. Everything looks good on the outside, everything's good. But God has the vision that a rescuer needs. 
just because it looks good on the outside doesn't mean everything's good. But He has the eyes to see into our heart in order to affect the kind of rescue that we actually need. What's happening here is that Balaam is set out to rescue the Moabites and God is actually set out to rescue Balaam from himself. Isn't this incredible? But this is our God. This is who He is. Redemptive and restorative and forgiving at His core. Absolutely stunning and incredible. And using this vision along with His power for righteousness. Think about this now. God is now not only the protector of Israel, but now in Numbers chapter 22, He's also the protector of Balaam from Himself. Right? God says, listen, if, the, if I didn't make the donkey stop, you would have been dead. And, listen, and this matters, it's not just an insignificant thing, He's even the protector of the donkey. This is the heart of our God. God says, you would have died, but not the donkey. Right? Think about this. This is the rescuer that we need, and yet we trust all of these other things that are corruptible in their vision. Power, vision, and loyalty. Last thing. In Balaam, we see someone who intends to speak only the words that God says. That's what he's going to do. That's good and commendable. So why then does God confront him in anger? You have to figure that out. Because God knows that Balaam's loyalty is not so good. <laughs> Let's put it that way, right? That what he intends to do at the outset can easily be persuaded in a different way. And so God is confronting him to remind him very intentionally about what he's supposed to do. God knows exactly what Balaam knows. That what awaits him when he gets to Moab is a ton of riches, a ton of notoriety, a ton of fame, a ton of praise lauded on him. And all of those things are going to be massive temptations to turn his loyalty away from the God who spoke to him towards the material things that can bless him in the moment. That is... That God does not confront Balaam because he has made a wrong decision to go. God confronts Balaam because God knows if he doesn't, when he gets there, he's going to make a wrong decision. And we will find out next week that Balaam speaks the words of God. But as you continue on in the story, you will find out that Balaam's loyalty is in fact corruptible. I won't steal anyone's thunder from Numbers chapter 25, but something bad happens in Moab in Numbers chapter 25. And the New Testament writers seem to think Balaam is involved in it. And that Balaam's finally, his loyalty is swayed. There's good and there's bad, but he's incredibly corruptible. Isn't that just like the things we tend to trust in this world? They're not out and out evil but they're also not 100% loyal to you and to the cause that God has set out for your life. And so their loyalty swings and shifts depending upon the currents of the day. 
But what about God? Is He just a promise maker? In fact, not. He's a promise keeper. You might remember the story of the golden calf. (laughs) Way back when the Israelites have just come out of Egypt, Moses goes up to get the law from God and and the Israelites tire of waiting. They want to create festivals like they had back in Egypt. They create this massive idol. this massive failure. And, and, And God wants to be done with Israel. Moses wants to be done with Israel. And, and God has this moment with Moses where, where Moses says, listen, I can't lead them unless you come with us. And I can't lead them unless I, I need to see you. Uh, and, and, and God passes by Moses and speaks his name to Moses. And this idea in Exodus 34, this idea is that God is patient, full of loving kindness, and slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness. That this is the covenant name of God. And what the book of Numbers does more than anything is prove that He's a God who lives up to His name. That with a people who rebel and grumble and are ungrateful at every single turn, He continues to redeem and rescue them. And this story is no different. Because Numbers 22, where God is defending Israel, comes on the heels of Numbers chapter 21, where deadly serpents are in the middle of Israel because they've turned against God. That is, you want to know God's loyalty? He's still carrying out His covenant, even though we invite deadly snakes into our midst day after day. Why? Because the covenant that God has made with His people has always been dependent upon Him and not us. On His name and not ours. In this life, friends, you are faced with not a single choice, but a moment-by-moment choice. Where will you look for rescue? We, like Moab, realize we can't do this on our own. We are looking outside of ourselves. And we're faced with two choices. Balaam, which represents any number of things, good, bad, and indifferent, that are incapable rescuers because their power is limited, their vision is lacking, and their loyalty is corrupted. Or God, the creator and sustainer of the universe who is not just all-powerful, but righteous in the execution of His power. Who not only has perfect vision to see, but vision that leads to repentance and redemption. And who's loyal not just to keep His covenant, but to welcome us into it. So what is Numbers 22 all about for modern-day readers like me and you? It's saying, listen, Please stop trusting Balaam. And instead, trust God. Perhaps you, like me and like the Moabites, would say, yeah, I want to trust God, but he's like seemingly intangible. He makes big promises, but how do I trust him? And the answer is Jesus, who puts flesh and blood on this covenant name 
of God and demonstrates for us once and for all that He is who He says He is, has done what He said He's done, and therefore can be trusted. Jesus is our perfect servant rescuer who demonstrates His loyalty while Himself in the wilderness being tempted not by Balak and Moab, but the devil himself, tempted in a very similar way to to have all the kingdoms in the power of the world given to him. And instead, resists it and gives his loyalty to God. He says, I must do what the Word of God says. This Jesus, our our servant rescuer, who Himself found Himself seated upon a donkey in a royal procession to a grand capital, instead of bowing in to the fanfare of the moment, instead had a vision that cut to the hearts of broken humanity to rescue and redeem them on a cross of crucifixion. And it was on that cross where Jesus demonstrated His unlimited power over sin and death, and therefore instituting a new creation for anyone who would believe. What's the Greek word believe really mean? Trust. So this morning, who will you trust? This is the question in front of us. Can I pray with you?